So I need to give you a couple of disclaimers. There will be a temptation, I feel, at some point in this sermon that you may want to stand up and yell at me. You may want to say, can you stop right there because you need to hear my story. Because if you would know my story, then you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. If you know the pain I felt, if you knew my husband, if you knew my wife, if you knew my past, if you know what I've dealt with, then, then maybe there would be other things that you would say. And, and I want to say two things to you. Number one is, you're right. I do not know your story. I cannot know your story or your depth of pain that some of these topics may swell within you. But I want to also assure you that I am not talking to any one individual in this room. And even though I'm not talking to any one particular individual in this room, I truly believe that this message applies to every person in this room. What I want to encourage you to do as much as you are able is to take your personal experience with lust, adultery, marriage, divorce, betrayal, pain, struggle, and all the things that are involved with these kinds of topics. As best as you can, I want you to try to push those to the side. Now, now we will come back at the end of the message, and I'll try to address you exactly where you're at. But as you said, I, I can't know your story. But what I would like you to do is try to push those experiences and that pain and that hurt and those questions and those circumstances aside so that you can hear from Jesus this morning, so that you can see how he teaches and why he teaches and what Jesus says about these topics before we move straight to your circumstance, your past, or how we might apply these to ourselves. We need to see what Jesus says and how he says it. Another quick disclaimer is I'm going to be talking about divorce uh, the second half of the sermon, and I'm going to be talking about it from the perspective of a man divorcing his wife. And the reason why I do that is that's because how it's presented in Scripture. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 19, here in Matthew 5 as well. As the, the implication, the context, the cultural context is men had the rights to divorce. Women were kind of powerless in the situation. So I'm just going to, it's just going to be easier for clarity's sake. I'm always just going to talk about the man divorcing the woman. However, in our cultural context today, we could flip the roles and it would be equally applicable. So it's not just a men against women. We can reverse the thing, and there's, sin is sin, and it can happen either way. But I'm just going to approach it from the aspect that the story brings it, the Scripture brings it to us, which is from the perspective of a man in sin divorcing his wife most often. Uh, the last disclaimer I will say is I do not claim to be perfect. I do not claim to have all the authority or all the answers. I have don't want to use the word evolved, I guess, but I have evolved in, in some of my theology over the past decade or so in this area. I firmly believe what I am preaching today. This, this, I'm preaching out of my heart and my conviction. There may be some people that disagree and there may be some wiggle room, but again, I want you to push those aside so that you can hear clearly from Jesus today. My aim today is not to preach from myself, even my own thoughts here this morning, is to present to you the Scriptures from God and Jesus himself so that we can apply them correctly in the way we approach these areas of lust and adultery and marriage, divorce, and even remarriage. So before we begin, with all that in mind, we better pray. Dear Lord, I pray for clarity this morning, clarity of thought, clarity of message, clarity of, uh, of mind and mouth. Lord, I pray that everything I say today would bring honor to your name, 
that it would that it would be clear that it's not just some random guy talking about things, but it's someone who desires to please you, do justice to your word, and is just a vehicle for your truth this morning. I pray that you would convict us of sin. I pray that you would humble us. But I also pray that you would encourage us with a picture of your love and grace. That you would inspire us with the beauty of your gospel, with the beauty of your intention for marriage here this morning. That we would leave here not beat down, but we would leave here encouraged with how great and glorious you are. With those things in mind, we pray in your name. Amen. So before we dive into the text this morning, I want to tell you a little story. It's always dangerous bringing in a personal story about your home life as a pastor, but I'm going to do it today. I have not cleared this with my wife. It will be okay, I promise. So I want you to imagine I'm at home. <laughs> That's not my usual practice. Uh, I want you to imagine that, you, uh, that I'm at home. And, and I move from the bedroom, and, and it goes from my bedroom to a hallway, and the kids' rooms are here, out to living there. And I'm passing, uh, let's say, my boys' room. I make a mistake. I look inside. And as, as I look inside, I'm a little disturbed by what I see, or maybe what I don't see. I, I can't see the floor. There, there's dirty clothes everywhere. There are toys everywhere. I'm pretty sure there's trash everywhere. I look over to the wall here, and I'm pretty certain there's some slimy substance making its way down the wall. And, and I make a second strategic mistake. I kind of peer my head in the window, in the door frame, and then it hits me like there's a smell. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't, I don't even want to step foot into this room. So I go up to the living room and say, boys, boys, you got to come here. So Landon and Callan, they come over here. Standing in the doorway of the room, I said, "Boys, we've got a problem." What? I was like, "Your room is a disaster. I cannot even see the floor. You need to get in here and clean it up." And they look up at me and they say, "Of course we'll do that, Daddy." And at that point, you realize that I'm making some of this up. That is not usually how the conversation goes. But in my story, my version of the story here this morning, I need you, I can't see the floor, I need you to clean it up. Okay, Daddy. And off they go, presumably, to clean up the room. It's a little while later, and I'm probably doing homework or studying for a sermon, and then I hear the boys are playing in the basement. All right, well, let's go see, see how they did. I don't have necessarily high expectations, but hey, who knows, anything's possible, right? So I go back to their doorway. And I'm disgusted by what I see. There is still slime. I think it's a little farther down, but it is still on the wall. I can still smell that rottenness of something in there somewhere. But there is, there is something different. The floor. It's cleaned. I can see it. I can see the floor. I'm like, wow, well, at least they accomplished something. And then, but then I realized that I also can't see other things. I can no longer see their bed. I can't see their dresser. And I'm pretty sure their closet doors are bowing. And I do not want to open those doors. So here we go again. Now, this does normally happen in my house. Boys! Here they come, running up the stairs from the basement, playing merrily. Boys, what's the problem? 
they appear in the room, they look at me. I don't know. What do you mean I don't know? I told you to clean your room and look at it. It's a disaster. It even smells and there's slime going down your wall. Like, you didn't tell us to clean our room. Uh, Okay, I have a bad memory, but I remember like an hour ago, I told you to clean your room. No, you did not. You said to clean it up. Yeah, clean it up. Clean your room up and look at it. It's a disaster. It smells. There's slime. No, you said, I can't see the floor. Get in there and clean it up. We cleaned the floor. Look at it. There's no way we could actually clean this whole room. It's too big of a mess. They also say that often. And in that moment, I realized they are actually right. That's exactly what I said. I said, I can't see your floor. I need you to get in there and clean it up. In that moment, I realized also, wow, you really can listen when it benefits you. Now, I tell you that story, and it is funny, and it is mostly made up, although there's some elements of truth in there. But I tell you that story to illustrate a problem that that I really believe that Jesus is addressing in our passage this morning. So I realized that we started this last week, and we're going to address it this week, and it's going to actually continue to go on for the rest of this chapter. The problem was the Pharisees are arguing about what it is. Right when it, Last week, when it came to the Sixth Commandment, the people thought they were fine. I haven't committed murder. There are no bodies in my closet. I haven't done it. But Jesus tells them, no, 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 you have missed the point. The it of the command wasn't just killing someone. The it was actually the root cause. The it was the heart that God was after. And Jesus is saying, listen, anger precedes murder. And what we found out last week was that we actually have quite the tendency to murder people with our words. So Jesus is calling his disciples, as we looked at again last week, yes, not to murder. Don't do that. But also to put away anger. But then he goes a step further And calls us not only to put away anger, but by calling us to be reconciled to one another. So we can think about it in this way. So we can think about it this way. I want to give you a paradigm. We're going to use this throughout uh, the sermon here this morning. There's a command. The command was do not murder. But then Jesus gives the Pharisees, the people who are listening, a heart check. He says, yeah, but do you get angry? got me there. And then he says, well, you got some work to do. There's some heart work to do. He says, you need to go reconcile. That's really what we looked at last week. But he's going to continue this theme again. And so here we are, and Jesus goes from the sixth commandment to the seventh commandment, which we're going to look at here this morning. And we're going to come across another it word. Last week, the it word was murder. This week, we're going to explore two different ones. But right now, the it word is adultery. And so Jesus is going to walk through the same paradigm. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, 
First verse, here's the command. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's pretty simple, straightforward. The command, do not commit adultery. And yes, the Pharisee would say, ah, that's a good commandment. Number seven, one of my favorites. Never done it. I have never done that. And if I knew anyone that did it, I would stone them because that's the penalty. And here I am still alive because I have never committed adultery. I can prove that I've never done adultery. Let me bring out my Bible dictionary, which I also happen to have on my computer this week. So I'll read to you the Bible definition. Look up adultery. Here's the definition. Sexual relations involving at least one partner who is married to someone else. Just like last time, they would have said, check. I haven't done it. I haven't slept with someone else's wife, so I'm not an adulterer. I am perfectly righteous before God, and I am keeping his law. Look at me, gold star Pharisee. Except here's the problem. They might have thought that they were conforming to God's law, but when God walked in the room, he saw adultery on the floor. He saw adultery sliding down the wall. He knew that there was adultery hiding in their closet. It had covered their beds, their dresser. It was everywhere. It stunk. And so he needs to give them a heart check. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's the heart check? Do you lust? Oh, I didn't realize that was the standard. Yeah, that's exactly what Jesus says. You've heard the command, do not commit adultery, but how about your heart? Let's check that out. Have you ever lusted before? What Jesus is telling us is that as God views adultery, it's more than just the physical act. That it isn't limited to the technical dictionary definition of adultery. Jesus is saying you are not allowed to devalue the women around you, to objectify them in your mind, to fantasize about them, to use them for your pleasure, even in your mind, just because you haven't crossed the threshold of physical contact. Jesus is telling us that just like last week, just as we can commit murder with our words, we can commit adultery in our hearts. And this is a heart check for you and me today that may make us a little uncomfortable. Because if this is true, it means that just like Keith called all of you murderers last week, that now he might just call all of you adulterers this week. Because I would never do that. But I think if we think about it, we would quickly realize that most likely every one of us in this room has committed this type of adultery, this type of heart adultery when it comes to lust. So what are we to do? How are we going to address this issue? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives us some heart work. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What's Jesus saying? What's the work that we need to do in our hearts? He's saying attack sin. You need to attack the sin that is in your heart. Now be careful. You do not want to go down the path of origin. The church father, Origen, like something like 200 A.D., he took this passage to mean he has to mutilate his body. In a very serious way, he had a problem with lust. And he said, well, Jesus says, got to cut it off. So what he first decided to do was to take off all his clothes, roll around in some sharp briars, cut his body all up. But what he found was that this did not solve his lust problem. Cut himself, hurt himself. He was trying to make it work, but it didn't. And so then he says, I just haven't been extreme enough. So he castrated himself. Following this paradigm. But what he found out was, that didn't cure his lust either. And what Origen found out, and hopefully what we understand today, is that there is no external solution for an internal problem. Now, there may be external actions, we're about to talk about some, that we need to take, but ultimately we need to understand that attacking sin is not just a purely external exercise, it is heart work. Jesus calls us to attack the sin that is in our heart and no amount of lashes, cutting, or anything else is going to fix the problem that is in our heart. So how do we attack sin? To put it in two very broad categories, I think there's a proactive approach and a reactive approach that are both appropriate. We want to be proactive. We want to remove access. And then we're going to want to be reactive, squash sin, kill sin as soon as it shows up. So removing access. Many of you probably know I'm a football fan. Yes, I am a fan of the Dallas Cowboys. No, I don't know why. It's just in my family's blood. And I will be that way until the day I die, most likely. However, I'm a football fan. We enjoy watching the boys have started to watch football with me. It's just, it's just a good time. I'm also an Awana volunteer. I also love Jesus. And on Sunday, Awana just happened to overlap with a good portion of the Super Bowl. Anyway, I had this thought. I was like, listen, I love Jesus more than football. That's a true statement. I love Jesus more than football. And it went beyond me because one of the things that we were trying to train our boys, three and five, listen, which is more important, Jesus or football? Jesus. Which is more important, family or football? Family. That's something that we're trying to reinforce with them because we enjoy watching football, but we don't want it to take a priority that it shouldn't be, right? And so now it's not just about me wanting to watch the Super Bowl. It's also about training my children, saying, man, if, I'm gonna, if I actually do love Jesus more than the Super Bowl, I'm going to show up at Awana, and I want to set that example for my kids. I'll admit I was a little bitter about it for a little bit, and I do have a position. I lead the game, so it's important that I was here, and I'm glad I was. But as I thought about it, you know what? There's some positive things that came from, from me not being able to watch the good portion of the Super Bowl. Cover his ears. <laughs> I didn't have to deal with 
uh, okay. uh, a couple months ago, we were watching a football game, and all of a sudden, Callan looks at the screen, and he says, that girl's naked. I didn't have to deal with that on Sunday during the first two-thirds of the football game. I didn't have to worry about other little kids and maybe my friends or even myself seeing something inappropriate on the TV or hearing something inappropriate on the TV. That is, guess what, more and more pervasive every time we turn on the TV. I didn't have to do that. It was an easy way for me to remove access. And I might have been a little grumpy about it for a minute, but as I thought about it more and more. But to go back to Callan, as I thought about it, you know, I laughed at the time. That's cute. You know, that's a cheerleader. She's not naked. Like, it's okay. And, and I had this thought. What, isn't that how they were portraying her? Isn't, isn't that kind of the point? That they know that they're drawing, especially on men's lust and desire and want of sex? What's the difference? And I think Jesus would say, well, if you're going to lust in your heart, there is no difference. Might as well be naked. Might as well sleep with it. Oh, heart check. That's what Jesus does. Now, Now, hear me. I'm not trying to say that you can never watch a football game. We went and watched the end of the Super Bowl. But this is something that I'm realizing I'm going to have to struggle more with. I'm going to have to wrestle with. I'm going to have to let the Spirit work in my heart. We are, me and Stephanie are going to have to have, have conversation about what the TV is looking at and where we can go and what we can watch. This, this is just part of being a Christian in our culture. It's hyper-sexualized. And you know what I'm talking about? The Super Bowl commercials and the halftime show and random small shots of a cheerleader every once in a while. That's not even to address... Big issues. Pornography. Something like 65% of young adults, so early 20s, 65% of young adult males uh, say that they um, watch pornography at least once a week. Not ever in their life, once a week. The number is 20% of young females, young adult females. The median age of exposure to pornography is 14. I guarantee you that's going down every day. There are statistic after statistic that speaks to the damaging effects of pornography and the hypersexualization of, of our society and culture. 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to pornography before they are 18. Almost half of all U.S. households report that pornography is a problem in their household. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by up to 300%. And that's not using Jesus' definition, by the way. Pornography is cited as a, as a factor in divorce more than 50% of the time. 70% of Christian youth pastors report that a teenager has come to them about their struggle with pornography in the last year. Chapel of Lake is not an exception to that. We could go on and on about the destructive, the, the depression, the anxiety, the substance abuse, the factors that, that lead to physical, mental disorders. It goes on and on and on. We have to be careful. We need to do a heart check. Am I, am I allowing things into my life that are allowing me to lust? Is there sin in my heart that I need to attack? And Jesus isn't just talking about pornography. He's talking about this and any other forms of lust is adultery. And I say this as graciously and maybe as boldly at the same time as I can. Some of you need to check your heart right now. 
and get it right with the Lord. Some of you need to text a friend, a trusted friend or a pastor or me. I'll give you my phone number, but it's on YouTube uh, right now and ask for help. And then get ready to attack sin. Cut it out. Remove access. Get rid of your phone. Cut your Internet off if necessary. Delete the social apps. Install filters and accountability software. Whatever you need to do, you need to do it now. You need to do it now for the sake of your wife, for the sake of your children or your future wife and your future children. But more importantly, you need to do it now for the sake of your soul. This is what Jesus says. But notice what Jesus also says in that passage. If your right eye causes you to sin, he doesn't say lust, he says sin. So now he's just brought in this whole category. The context is sexual sin and lust. But he's also telling us this is how we're supposed to attack sin, any sin. You have a problem with gossip? How about anger? What are you supposed to do? Attack it. How are you going to do it? Remove access. When it shows up, you're going to squash it. You're going to kill it. You're going to get rid of it as fast and as hard as you can. He's saying cut off all access and kill sin. So we're supposed to remove access but also actively kill sin. What does that mean? The fact is that even if we do all the right things, trying to prevent all the things, we have the filters, we have the apps, we have accountability, where we're not going to, to places where we think we're going to be tempted, it's going to happen. You're going to run to that person that, man, just makes you mad. You're going to be walking in the supermarket and you're going to see that woman. What are you going to do? You have a choice to make right there in that moment. Are you going to give way to lust or are you going to kill sin before it starts? Because this is what Jesus is advocating. Kill sin before it takes your soul. He, he acknowledges that there's a difference between a glance and a gaze. This idea, if, you're, if you're right, it causes you as a, as a present tense verb. It's a continual, continual action. So he's not saying if you've been tempted once, you're going to hell. But as, because one of those things is unavoidable. We live in a fallen, broken culture. And we have sin in us. But one engages the imagination. We need to realize the truth in what Luther said. You can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building a nest in your hair. And this is what Jesus is talking about as he addresses the issue of sin, temptation, and lust. And the reason, he cites, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. He's saying unrepentant, recurring sin means you're on a dead-end path. And that dead-end path is hell. If you're telling me that you're in an unrepentant sin right now, whatever it may be, I'm concerned for your soul. I cannot pronounce that judgment on you. That is between you and God, but God's word says, beware of unrepentant, persistent sin. Don't give in to it, remove access, cut it off, kill it. When we give in to sin, we are buying the lie that the right now is more important than all of eternity. We just read verse 30. This is what James says in James 1.15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It highlights just how much we underestimate the beauty and the glory of heaven for all of eternity because we trade it for the now. And it also is a warning that we may just be underestimating the severity of hell. 
and eternal separation from God. This is the word of the Lord. If that's not heavy enough, Jesus extends the conversation about adultery and gives us another paradigm in verses 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What's the command? It should be give a certificate of divorce. It's an important phrase. Jesus departs from the Ten Commandments. This isn't listed there. It's actually a reference to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But I think there's a reason why he does this. I actually think there's two reasons. Number one, you can't really separate the concepts of lust and adultery from marriage, divorce, and and remarriage. They're so intertwined, and he's emphasizing marriage here. And he wants to make sure that we get the depth of the picture. But I would say maybe more likely or, or a better point of emphasis is his audience. Remember, he's talking to Pharisees who mistakenly thought that if they didn't commit adultery, that that they didn't commit adultery because they had never crossed that physical threshold. Except they did in their heart, and that's what Jesus says, you're already an adulterer in your heart. But they also had another way to get around adultery. They also didn't think they were committing adultery because they would just divorce their wife before they would go sleep with another woman. And so it, the, the thought would be like this. I'm tired of this wife. I don't like her anymore, but I am godly. I am gold star Pharisee. I will follow the law. You are divorced. I will go over here to my new wife, at least until I want another one. But I'm a godly man. I am keeping the law. I am doing what Moses commanded. That was the logic. Where did this come from? Where did this logic come from? Because it seems not at all what God would intend, and you'd be right if you're thinking that. So I think what Jesus is doing in these two verses is he's actually closing this legal loophole where they could divorce a wife, feel justified, and then go do whatever they wanted with another woman. So he attaches adultery not only to lust, but this kind of divorce this kind of flippant, frivolous divorce that was really based in, again, the lust of the man who wanted a new wife. Well, where did it come from? Well, there was another ongoing debate over the centuries from this passage in Deuteronomy 24 that Jesus quotes. Interestingly enough, it was an ongoing debate about another it word. This it word was indecency. Let me show you from the text. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. We're going to have to pick up the pace here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then there's some more regulations that follow that. To put it briefly, there's, there's two schools of thought. And it all centered around this word, indecency. Well, what does it mean that this woman has, uh, that the man has found some indecency in her? There's two schools of thought. The, there's one school, the school of Shammai. 
and they had their rabbis, and they had to teach them rabbis, and people would congregate to people, and that's how smart you were, basically, by who followed you. And so the school of Shammai was the conservative line of thinking, where they said, well, this indecency was referring to a sexual act, and that's the only reason for divorce. And that's probably because if we were to translate this phrase, found some indecency in her, literally, it would say to find a naked thing. So the correlation was, yeah, he finds displeasure. He finds a naked thing. This is implying a sexual connotation, a sexual sin here. And so they said that's the only reason for divorce. But there was another school, the school of Hillel. And the school of Hillel took a more liberal approach. They said, well, indecency, no, that's just anything. Anything that causes the husband displeasure is grounds for divorce. And over time in the Mishnah, the rules and regulations of the Jewish people, they started writing down all the different reasons that a man could get a divorce from a woman. So that way he could say, the law says, you've gained a little too much weight. Divorce. The law says, your eyebrows are crooked. Divorce. The law says, you burnt the dinner. Divorce. These are all legitimate, like written down. They were used these as valid reasons for divorce. Your head is shaped like a turnip. Divorce. No joke. And it was considered legal. And so you can see how over time, which, which do you think was more popular in the male-dominated culture? Yeah, doesn't take much thought there. So by the time Jesus comes around, it's pervasive. It's bad. These Pharisees, these Jewish leaders are divorcing their wives left and right so they can go fulfill their lust. All the while saying, I am righteous, I am justified, I am gold star Pharisee standing pure before the Lord. Thankfully for us, Jesus literally addresses this exact argument in Matthew chapter 19. I don't have the first bit of this, but the, the Pharisees go to Jesus and they're trying to trap them. They're, they're not genuine, of course. They're like, Jesus, can't, is, you tell us. Is it lawful to, to divorce a wife for any cause? Because that's what we've been doing. And if he says no, then we're going to say, ha ha, gotcha, Moses said we could. Okay? How does Jesus answer? You know where he goes? He goes before Moses. He goes Genesis. This is from the beginning. Haven't you read? Don't you know Genesis, you people of the law and people of the book? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, who made them one flesh? So they, know are, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus said, why are you asking me this? Go read the book. Go read God's revelation to you and do that. No, you cannot divorce a woman for any reason. And they said, ha, ah, we got you, Jesus. Then they said to him, I think I have it here, verse 7, Matthew 19. Why then did, Jesus, did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away, Jesus? Ha, ha, ha. Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Jesus this is not ambiguous. Jesus is clear. No, you cannot divorce your wife for any reason you want. 
Yes, God's intention was for one man, one woman, exclusive relationship, lifelong, covenant marriage until death. No. Haven't you read? This is what God has done. Don't separate it. And again, includes except for sexual immorality. I'm going to address in just a second. He says, beyond that, Moses did not command you. Stop lying. Moses did not command you to get a divorce. He permitted it because you had hard hearts. You see, the Pharisees were just focused on divorce. The Pharisees were just focused on getting what they wanted, either to trick Jesus or continue to live in their lust. But Jesus makes it clear that he was focused on God's intention for marriage. If we were to go back to Deuteronomy 24, which we don't have time to do, and read the rest of that, what we find out is God was protecting women in that. He was actually making it a safer place for women. Because if she was divorced and left out in the cold, she had no way to sustain herself. If she had a stigma placed on her because she was divorced, no one would touch her. How is she going to survive? And so God doesn't condone it. He codifies it. He said, if you're going to do it, because of the sinfulness, heartfulness of your own life, I'm going to put some restrictions on it for the protection of this woman, helping her survive through so that she wouldn't be abused, so she wouldn't be labeled as an adulteress when she really was not. And so it's in this context that Jesus brings the heart check to the Pharisees back in Matthew chapter 5. No, you cannot get divorced. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's the heart check. You tell me, Pharisees, can you get a divorce for any reason? Well, was it for adultery? Uh, no. There's your answer. Jesus is making it clear here that sexual immorality, adultery, the breaking of the physical marital bond is the only acceptable reason for divorce and remarriage. Jesus is essentially telling the Pharisees that divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality will result in an adulterous relationship. And this is, this is what helps us make sense of what Jesus says about remarriage. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, Pharisee, if you just divorce this woman because she burnt your dinner, to go marry some other woman, what's she going to do? She's got nothing. She's going to have to get married. He's implying remarriage here. But the marriage bond hasn't been broken by her. You're going to cause her to commit adultery. You're going to cause her to become an adulteress, and you're going to cause the man who marries her and sleeps with her to be an adulterer as well. Because that bond should have never been broken to begin with. But you're doing it to satisfy your own lusts. Jesus was warning the Pharisees, There will be no more of this. I don't like you. Turnip head. Here's your divorce. Washing my hand. Oh, I'm good with God. Righteous Pharisee. Hello, new wife. Perfect head shape. I don't know what that is. All right. No. No, Jesus says, I will not have any of that. Because that causes you to be the reason for this woman's adultery. What Jesus had done once again, was walked into the room. He has seen the stink of adultery on the Pharisees. He saw it lurking on every surface. He sees it crawling down the wall. And he know, know in their heart that they have completely missed God's intention for marriage, even if the floor was legally clean. 
Jesus is assuming that, yes, if, if this divorce happens, this woman will need to get remarried. And this marriage covenant had become a tradable commodity for the people, supposed people of God. And I want you to hear clearly, I, I don't believe that Jesus was blaming or assigning blame or guilt on the woman who was forced into this adulterous relationship because it broke her original marriage vow. Rather, he was pointing out and accusing the Pharisees of a misuse and abuse of the marriage covenant. Now, I think I can prove that to you from the Old Testament. Just a couple of verses from Malachi chapter 2. The people of God are whining again because God isn't listening to them. He's not responding to them. He's not blessing them. Literally, the prophet is saying, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, but why, God? Why aren't you helping me? Do you really want to know? Okay. Skip to verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Why isn't God listening to me? Because you're unfaithful. Why isn't God blessing me? Because you divorced your wife. Why? Because that's violence. There's two ways of reading this phrase covers her garment with, his garment with violence. Either he takes his stained, guilt-soaked garment and literally places it on, places the guilt on the wife who has, he has dealt treacherously with, violated, divorced. Or, if you think about last week, you think of murdering someone with a knife. Murder someone with a knife. You do it physically, you're going to be covered in blood. And the picture from last week is, yeah, well, you can do that with your words too. You're going to go stab somebody, murder somebody with your words. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be covered in their blood. The guilt is on you for your anger. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. God is saying through the prophet Malachi in Malachi 2, what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew. He's saying, you go over here and you commit divorce. You divorce this woman for a flippant, not sexual adult, immorality or adultery reason. You know what you're doing? You're committing violence against her. You're causing her to be an adulterer. Guilt's not on her. It's on you. It's on your garment. Person who is unfaithful to his first love. You're the guilty party here, not them. That's how I would understand this teaching from Jesus. If we jump back to Matthew chapter 19, some of you may be feeling exactly how the disciples were feeling at that time when Jesus made these statements. And they said, Wait a minute. If such is a case of a man with his wife that we can't just divorce them when we want, it is better not to marry. Tells me two things. The disciples got it. And yeah, it was serious. Because they're like, got it. Are you serious? Look at what Jesus, how Jesus responds. He doesn't capitulate. He doesn't reword. He doesn't try to like maneuver around and make it more palatable. What does Jesus say? Yep. 
Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Yeah, this is heavy. Yeah, this is weighty. And that's how God intended it to be. Jesus didn't back down. He said, you're absolutely right. If you're going to divorce your wife, don't get married. Stay single for the kingdom of God, like the eunuch. Described in the next couple of verses. There are different classifications of eunuchs, but some become eunuchs by choice so they can serve God and not really deal with the complications of marriage because it's a big thing. It's a weighty thing. Oh, I didn't give you the heart work. The heart work is this. It's not explicit in the text, verse 31 and 32, but I think it's implicit. Don't be flippant with your wife. Remain faithful. Remain faithful to your spouse. We know how God feels about divorce. He hates it. That's his words. I hate divorce. It's important to realize, again, that this exception clause, valid exception clause, except for sexual immorality, is not an expectation. It's not a command. Jesus, God, they don't endorse divorce. But you know what they do endorse? Where we started this chapter. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Christians are called to forgive. Christians are called to reconcile. So where does that leave you? So here's where I want to address every person in this room in some way as quickly as I can. You all will fit into at least one category, one of four categories, and so many of you will fit into at least two. If rare occasion, three. But the message will be the same to every category of people in here. And it's really the main point of Jesus' teaching. If there was a big idea, it was this. It would be this. We honor marriage. We honor marriage when we attack sin in our hearts and remain faithful to our spouse. So the calling to you and me and everyone here in this room is to honor marriage. How do I do that? If you're married, or even if you're remarried, I would tell you to renew your commitment to each other and to God's design for marriage. Commit to living out your lives faithful, faithfully towards one another. Focus on modeling what Christian marriage should be. If you're remarried, this advice is for you because there's, there's no way to go back in time and undo the past. Please don't go divorce your current spouse because you think that I told you to, so you can go reconcile. Can't do it. Can't do that. Remember that God is gracious and that God forgives. I think you should confess your sin. If it was unbiblical divorce, if you've been remarried, I think you should. I think as much as you are able, seek reconciliation and forgiveness from anyone who is involved with that situation. As much as it depends on you, seek these things. But now honor the marriage that you're in. Remain faithful. There's more options to being married than being miserable or being divorced. Some people kind of start to get on the Pharisee train and they start to say, oh, I guess I can't get divorced, but I really don't like my life, but I want to make my wife, but I want to make sure everyone thinks I'm a good Christian, so I'm just going to be miserable. Please don't do that. There's a third option. You know the third option is? Start listening back when we started preaching the series, Matthew 5. Keep listening to Matthew 7. Put that on repeat. Read those chapters and apply these principles. Become a kingdom participant. Enter into Christ's purpose for you. 
I guarantee you, even if just one, your marriage will get better, even if just one of you will focus on becoming the person that Christ has called you to be. The hardest thing I have to say to married people is if you're married right now and you're struggling or you're considering a divorce, can I humbly ask you, can I humbly ask you to slow down? To slow down, to seek God, to seek godly counsel, and then to pray for your spouse. I'm not making a judgment whether you have legitimate reasons or not reasons. I don't, again, I don't, not can't, I don't know your story. But can I ask you to slow down, talk to God, to seek godly counsel, to pray for your spouse, to remember that God has given us grace so that we might have the opportunity to display that grace to a hurting world, but maybe even our spouse. I know this, that the gospel is the story of taking what was once broken and shattered even and giving it and forming it into new life. If you're a Christian here today, that's what he's done for you. And I think that's what he's calling us to be and model in our lives. What about those of you who either are currently or have been divorced? Can I say I'm sorry? I'm sorry for the pain that I know it brings. Not, I have never talked to anyone who, who likes divorce. It's far-reaching. It hurts. It's, it's damaging. But I think you should also know this, that God hates divorce, but he does not hate you. He does not hate you. Remember, we serve a gracious, forgiving God. Divorce does not disqualify you from God's kingdom. Divorce does not disqualify you from service in God's kingdom. And a divorce does not disqualify you from this church. You are welcome here. We are all broken. We all have sin. And we all serve a gracious and forgiving God. I would say if you're divorced, the hard thing I have to say to you, if you're dating or considering remarriage, can I humbly ask you to slow down? To slow down, to seek God, to seek godly counsel, and to pray. Again, I can't know the situation. We can talk about the seek godly counsel. That's that part of that. But I can tell you we don't want to take this step lightly. Will you slow down? Will you seek God? Will you seek godly counsel? Will you pray? If you're dating or single in here, the advice for you is really just the same thing. You're the same category of people in, in this, this way. More than ever, I think you need to commit to moral purity. And I understand I said moral purity and sexual purity is only a piece of that picture. How do I become morally pure? Focus your mind on what is morally pure. That is Christ. So many people say, I, we just want God to be in our marriage and I want to come into premarital counseling and, and all this stuff. It's like, okay, well, where is God in your life today? Oh, I, I don't know. Well, why do you expect that God's going to show up in your marriage later? If God is not in your daily life now, whether you're single or dating, why would you expect God to show up in your marriage? And if you want God in your marriage, which I truly believe these couples do, then practice that today. And a warning, if you're dating someone who disregards God's command in relation to moral or sexual purity, don't be surprised when, after you're married, they also disregard God's commands. Don't be surprised. So can I ask you to slow down, to seek God, to seek godly counsel, and to pray. To commit to remain faithful to God's ideal of marriage. And please, especially if you're a young woman here today, please don't compromise. Don't settle for some dude that just shows up with a Bible sometimes. 
Find someone who pursues God the way you do, center of his life. Lastly, last thing, if you're a parent here in this room, the world today is not like the world you grew up in. There's a whole host of reasons for that, but a big reason right now in this area of lost adultery, divorce, and remarriage. So there are some things that are practical steps that I think you should take, you know, guards, safeguards, filters, whatever, but I think there's something more important than those things, and it's this. We open up conversations with your kids. Will you talk to them about these issues? Yes, set boundaries with your kids, but will you model the ideals that are found in Scripture about what a marriage should be and further what it looks like to have Jesus as the central person in your life? Will you model that for your children? Because a lot of this stuff is caught, not taught. They learn it over time, but they learn it from you primarily. Will you get them connected to the church body? Will you be a part of their growth and sanctification and holiness and purity towards the good and gracious and forgiving Savior? We know you're not perfect. I am not perfect, but we serve a gracious and forgiving God. So you parents, can I ask you to slow down? Can I ask you to seek God when it comes to this thing in parenting? Can I ask you to seek godly counsel? And will you pray for your children? Will you pray for their future spouses? Will you pray for their purity? Will you pray they will learn to love Jesus more than you do? Will you commit to that today? Jesus says this is a hard teaching. Not everyone can accept this saying. But I hope what you heard today is Christ's heart for his church, his heart for you, and his heart for marriage. May he bless his word. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we could talk another month. We wouldn't cover the depth of, of what you say when it comes to marriage. We, just, we wouldn't know how to describe or, or how, to, how to deal with it. We're thankful that we don't have to be perfect, that we are broken, that you have fixed us and repaired us and brought us into relationship with you, and you have called us to live life in, in honor and reflection of your love, your covenant and faithful love towards us. Lord, I pray that you would convict us of sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would help us run from sin, and that you would help us embrace your model for marriage, moral purity, that we would be an example, a shining example, a light to the world of honoring marriage. It's in your name we pray. Amen.